Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 313 Reinventing Buddhist Tantra. We're joined this week by writer and Buddhist practitioner David Chapman to discuss some of his ideas regarding the reinvention of Buddhist Tantra. This is part one of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn doing my customary opening, and I'm joined today by our friend, David Chapman. Um, But don't let the term friend fool you. That doesn't mean we're not going to have some disagreements, as David is uh, want to point out. But good to have you on the show. It's awesome to to be here speaking with you. Thank you. It's great to be here um, with you and with the Buddhist geeks. Yeah, good to have you back. Um, So just a a little brief intro for uh, for those those folks who don't know you yet. Um, You are a writer. You've been blogging on several uh, blogs for a few years now. Uh, one of my favorites is called Meaningness, and it's you can find it at meaningness.wordpress.com. You also have a cool blog on Buddhism for vampires, and uh, you write about all kinds of things related to uh, contemporary culture, technology, uh, tantric Buddhism, um, all sorts of interesting things, philosophy. Um, so it's great to have you, uh, you know, kind of exploring some of those things with us today. Um, we also um, spoke to you, um, I forget how long ago it was, but probably a year or so ago, at least, um, Hokai Sobel uh, did a sort of guest interview with you talking about consensus Buddhism and mindful mayo. Um, and uh, for, for anyone who's interested, I think that's a good introduction in some ways to the conversation that we're going to have today, which is on reinventing Buddhist Tantra. So this is a fascinating topic. Um, you've been writing about it recently on your blog on meaningness.wordpress.com. Uh, and um, I was curious if we could just start because this is a long series that you've been working on. And apparently, uh, according, to the, according to the series itself, um, there's still much yet to be written. Um, so I was wondering, you know, what kind of the overarching purpose or, or intention with that series is. And if you could just share a bit about the background there. Yeah, thanks. I think Buddhism potentially can address some major problems in contemporary modern Western culture and society. Um, And I also think it could very easily go effectively extinct or become entirely irrelevant. And in that case, that potential would be lost. Uh, The kinds of Buddhism we have now are, for various reasons, um, probably not equipped to handle the issues that I have in mind. The traditional ones are Uh, archaic and culture-bound, so they're not really accessible for most people. And modern Buddhism is is already, I think, in a way obsolete. It developed first, this is something I've learned about recently that I think not a lot of people know, it developed in uh, in Asia first, modern Buddhism did, to address political problems that uh, Thailand, Japan had in the 1800s. And then that version was adapted to by Westerners to address 
Western cultural problems of the mid 20th, late 20th century. Uh, the problems we have now are, are different, I think. And so we need a different kind of Buddhism. Mm. And in the process of modernization, some key parts of traditional Buddhism got dropped out, which I think I would like to recover. Mm. Uh, in particular, um, Tantric Buddhism has tools that um, can address uh, current spiritual problems, um, thinking particularly about the atomization of meaningness, the atomization of culture, of society, um, of ourselves as a result of that. If you just look at your Twitter stream, there, there's this explosion of stuff, and how do we deal with that? How do we navigate this heaving sea of meaning? Mm. Um, this is not something that I think Buddhism has tools within it that could address that, but they're not available now. So I'd like to bring those tools to bear on contemporary culture. And um, you know, Tantra is, is all about communication and about enthusiasm. And uh, it's something I'm enthusiastic about. So I'm trying to communicate my enthusiasm. Mm, great, great. And, you know, I, I think the place to start, especially for those of us who may not have a really deep grasp of what Tantra is, um, might be with this um, notion that you present, which is that the method of Tantra is unclogging energy by uniting spaciousness and passion. And it seems like one of the ways that you're claiming Tantra is sort of unique to other forms of Buddhism um, in particular, some of those that have been modernized to to a large degree, you could say already, and and have also become even mainstream. You know, with the whole mindfulness movement as a great example of that in the uh, with the Theravada Buddhist tradition. So, um, you know, I wanted to see if you could say a little bit about what this uh, kind of core notion you have of tantra is um, around spacious passion, because that's that's a kind of unique term that I I had myself hadn't run across before. Yeah, um, I think of this as a sort of a secret formula. This is the um, the one sentence summary of of Buddhist Tantra, which is uh, it's an attitude of um, uniting spaciousness and passion to unclog energy, which aims for mastery, power, nobility, and playfulness. Mm. Um, some of those words may be familiar from other kinds of Buddhism, although they're, they're the, 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 the slant's a little different. Some other one of those words you might not think of as being particularly Buddhist at all. Um, so maybe I can unpack it. Like on a, playfulness? Word-by-word you know, word base. Yeah, right. <laughs> or, you know, nobility, even energy is something that is a central theme in Tantra you don't hear a lot about elsewhere. Hmm. Um, so. First of all, I see the essence as an attitude, which means not simply a mental state, but actually you can say an attitude like a posture or a disposition to act in a particular way. Um, so we're already with that word crossing the inside outside boundary. Um, Tantra takes for granted that that's basically imaginary or permeable 
And um, an attitude is always an attitude towards something uh, that's outside of you. And uh, one of the supposedly distinctive features of Tantra is that it values the, the everyday world positively. And it's always about what's happening in the everyday world. It's not uh, concerned with escaping from reality into some kind of um, immaterial nirvana. Um, so the next word is freedom from fixed meaning, mm. um, letting go of the compulsion to categorize, to give values to things, interpret them. And that can liberate you from automatic responses. This is not so different from emptiness as it's understood in mainstream Buddhism um, or wisdom is sort of the, 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 the experience or recognition of emptiness. There's a slightly different twist here, but it's basically the same concept. Uh, so we've got spacious passion. Passion is um, a strong emotion. And a, a Tantra is distinctive in saying that emotion, all emotions are okay. There's no bad emotions. And uh, you shouldn't be trying to get rid of emotions or to fix them or uh, anything like that. Um, passion is what connects us with the world. It's what drives our action. And this is what this form of Buddhism is, is about, is, is acting in the everyday world. Um, Passion drives a connection, which is uh, created, maintained, and ended by effective and accurate activity. Um, connection involves appreciation, communication, interaction, involvement, and intervention. So we're uniting passion and spaciousness. Uh, passion is something that we've got everywhere in the everyday world. Um, mainstream Buddhism sees that as a problem. Its antidote is uh, heading towards some kind of um, sense of anatman or emptiness in which that disappears. That's very the recognition of, of that emptiness or selflessness is, is critical. It's the base for Tantra. But we want to then bring that experience together with passion um, in order to uh, transform emotions by experiencing their empty nature. Um, and when passion is experienced as empty or placed in the envelope of spaciousness, then it clarifies, the different emotions clarify into different wisdoms. Um, and this allows the energy of the passion to flow freely in directions that are revealed by the spaciousness. Okay, great. Um, can, can I go back to one thing you said and just kind of uh, uh, explore this with you? So you you mentioned that modern Buddhism in some ways is uh, a, opposed to this passion or wanting to kind of negate this passion or transcend this passion. Um, 
Now, this is a point you and I have gone a little bit back and forth on. And, and in my experience, um, that's true in some cases, but definitely not in all cases, and, and maybe not even in most cases, um, at least yes. the folks that I've talked to. So I wanted to kind of explore this a bit more. What, what, is it all modern Buddhism or is it certain people? You know, and, and what is the, what's going on there? Yeah, uh, this is a really interesting and uh, solid question. I think it's certainly true that um, what I've said so far um, is uh, distinct from traditional Buddhism, but many modernists um, value emotions positively. And uh, so there's a development in modern Buddhism, particularly to incorporate Western psychological ideas to address that. And um, that's done to varying degrees. Uh, and um, the most, um, I, th I think we've talked about this in terms of the uh, East Coast versus West Coast split in the Vipassana movement, which yeah. our friend Anne Gleig has written a very interesting paper about. And she argues that the West Coast Vipassana movement is quasi-tantric. And I, I think that's right. Um, I think uh, she's got a really good point there that um, Jack Cornfield and the other teachers there have brought in um, some ideas from Tantra and you know, possibly even some practices. I don't know because I, I don't know their work very well. Yeah. Um, so where the the distinction lies is in that um, there's still a kind of a waffling there, as far as I can tell, that there's still some uh, renunciate elements yes. in, in even the most uh, tantric, one could say, of the mainstream modernist Buddhisms. And there's a, a big reluctance to incorporate the practices and some of the doctrines of Tantra, which um, work with passion. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I think this is where it's so interesting to cross train um, across different kind of approaches because it, it, it becomes much easier to see the differences. And I, I have no experience with Tantra, so, um, but what you're describing does sound distinct in some ways from the, from the sort of West Coast Vipassana. Um, but, you know, one last thing just on that, because I, I think this was a kind of interesting point that I that I heard Jack Cornfield uh, make a few years ago on retreat. Someone was asking him about this sort of this very thing. And um, they were asking him if, you know, bas basically some question about whether Vajrayana was superior to Hinayana. You know, they're bringing in all these kind of Tibetan terms. And, uh, you know, his response, which was quite interesting, had something to do or something along the lines of saying, you know, basically you find these different um, kind of attitudes or these different ways of approaching experience um, across different traditions. You know, you find Vajrayana in the Theravada tradition. You find, you know, you find that every, the world is sacred attitude, you know, uh, mm -hmm. deeply embedded in certain approaches or teachers. You also find, you know, um, I, I, I'd say you, maybe you, you'd have more experience of this, but you find a, you know, more Hinayana renunciative, uh, attitude and plenty of uh, probably Tibetan and Vajrayana teachers, maybe even some tantric teachers might be more on that side. I don't know. Um, but 
anyway, I thought that was a kind of interesting point to kind of disconnect the approach or the attitude from the historical traditional vehicle. Um, and I found that quite, it made a lot of sense uh, of the different kinds of orientations that various people I've met have, have taken to these things, even if they're coming at the same exact tradition. Yes. Um, I, I would say uh, that the, the attitude is the essence of the vehicle, um, if vehicle is understood as yana. Yeah. Uh, something that's often misunderstood is, is to think that Tibetan Buddhism equals Vajrayana, which essentially means Buddhist Tantra. Right. And in fact, Tibetan Buddhism is mostly not tantric. It's mostly uh, Hinayana and Mahayana and renunciate in its orientation. Mm. And at the same time, something I only ex started exploring quite recently is that um, Theravada act very strong tantric tradition that is still live and current in Asia in um, all of the Theravada countries except Sri Lanka um, actually have uh, a, a tantric Buddhism. And um, there's, there's some sketchy reason for believing that the East Coast-West Coast split on uh, renunciate versus tantric may actually be connected with uh, different approaches in Burma versus uh, Thailand. Yeah, where the the Thai approach really incorporates some tantric elements with their renunciate practice, where in Burma those are kept quite separate. Mm, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, cool. Thanks for going down that rabbit hole with me because it's uh, something I've definitely wanted to talk to you about. Um, so, so kind of going back to reinventing um, Buddhist tantra, um, you mm -hmm. sort of described what you see as kind of the the core attitude of tantra. This um, uh, bringing together of spacious passion. And mm -hmm. um, I wondered then if we could extrapolate out to what a Western Tantra, or maybe maybe at this point, I don't need, sometimes I don't even like the term Western. It's like what, what a global Tantra might look like. Yes, modern or, modern or contemporary. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I think clearly more or less by definition, a modern Buddhist Tantra should combine the best of the Western heritage, um, our uh, Western values, culture, and understanding with compatible Buddhist elements, in particular Tantric ones. Um, what that's going to look like, uh, people will have different ideas, obviously, because people have different values. The West is not at all um, people find different parts of Western culture positive or negative. Uh, so um, I don't think there's any one right answer. I ideally would like to see the development of many different modern Buddhist tantras that would uh, address different people who have different ideas about what it ought to be. Yes. Personally, I would, uh, I have a education as a scientist and an engineer, and that means uh, I would like to see um, a version of, of Buddhist Tantra that is compatible with the a lot of the values of the European Enlightenment. So it might be secular uh, in the sense of 
um, non-dogmatic and teaching attitudes and practices rather than things you're supposed to believe. Um, I'd like to see it science compatible, uh, rational, empirical. Uh, I think it um, could be entirely without supernatural concepts. Sometimes people think of Buddhist Tantra as kind of the magical branch of of Buddhism, and I think that's sure. a misunderstanding. Um, there's nothing in it that's inherently about about magic or gods or demons or any of those things, even though um, as it has been presented, those are central. Um, I think I would like to see um, modern Buddhism uh, take Western philosophy and psychology seriously, and I think Tantra has something to offer philosophically. Mm. Um, I would also like to see um, maybe more importantly, um, Tantra engaged with artistic culture. Um, it can teach creativity that's really quite central to Tantra, and it would ideally be in dialogue with uh, Western music, art, fiction, you know, even video game design, say. This is, you know, there's, there's, there's opportunities there. Mm. Um Tantra wonderment or awe is a, is a big theme in Tantra and, and also in art. So these are um, go very nicely together. And, and artistic creativity has always been a, a, a big aspect of Tantra. Um, in terms of what a modern Tantra should be, something uh, that's an interesting um, feature is that it says, uh, women are inherently better practitioners than men and um, men ought to relate to women uh, and taking that into account, which is kind of not the way things have gone in Tantra in recent centuries, but that's something that we could recover. Um, there's some inspiring female role models in Tantric history uh, and there's teachings on how men and women can relate to each other, which might be relevant. Uh, you know, modern Buddhism takes it for granted that men and women are equal, but the, the tradition that it's based on is systematically misogynistic, and Tantra, at least in theory, is not. Um, relatedly, Tantra acknowledges that romantic love and sex are hugely spiritually important to us um, and values them positively where the whole mainstream tradition sees them as hindrances and, um, you know, the number one thing you need to give up. So um, again, this is the modern Western view, but uh, there's not a lot of uh, religious teaching from any tradition available on how this might work and so tantra may again have something to offer there um tantra is inherently relational in a much broader sense um it's about communication collaboration uh so it's um inherently a group activity and it's inherently um about social uh 
um, factors. So uh, this is um, can imply an engagement with social problems that we have now. Okay, so it sounds like I, just as you started speaking, that the creative uh, aspect came to mind, and I was glad to hear you touch on that because that seems like an obvious area where there's a there's a kind of connection. Um, I was imagining, you know, if Vipassana really appealed to these sort of scientists and geeky types, you know, um, that Tantra would kind of natu more naturally appeal to creative types. Um, and I know that's an oversimplification, but it makes a lot of sense based on how you're describing it earlier. Yes, uh, I think that's absolutely true. Um, I'm a geeky type, but I have some artistic uh, inclinations um, also. Uh, I, it is. Um, it's a very beautiful system uh, that can be hard to get into because of the cultural obstacles now. But if that can be translated, uh, then the beauty of the system reflects the beauty of um, our natural world, um, the cultural and social environment. And it's, it's all about appreciation of... Um, what is happening in the in the world? Mm. I mean, in in some ways, when you describe the sort of philosophical or ad, attitudinal underpinnings of tantra, it definitely seems more in line with the kind of imminent uh, way that most humans orient. I mean, I, I recently saw a great video from this religious studies scholar, Don Cupid, where he said, "You know, our new totalizing concept isn't God anymore; it's life." You know, at the end of someone's life, when you're at their funeral, you know, no one says uh, so-and-so loved God. They say so-and-so loved life. Um, so, mm. I mean, that, that kind of fits with, with what you're describing in some ways that, um, you know, the tantric attitude is very much sort of life embracing as opposed to sort of mm -hmm. life transcending. Um, mm -hmm. So it seems like a natural that's, fit in that sense. That, that's, that's the, the essential tantric distinction. And so, uh, you know, because this is also the, as as he said, this is also the contemporary Western view. I think modern Buddhism, which started out in the 1800s as a very strongly renunciative system, ascetic, um, has gradually moved without anybody noticing it towards a tantric attitude, and it actually mainly has the attitude now. But in the process of the earlier modernization, those the tools that Tantra offers um, got dropped out. And so there's now, um, I think, modern Buddhism has a, a certain weakness in having a, a rather than the sutric attitude it originated with, but it has sutric tools uh, it's retained those and hasn't adopted the tantric tools. So there's a mismatch of intention and methods. Mm, okay, I see what you're saying. So, so it's the intention may be there, but but you're saying due to the kind of methods being what being kind of um, culturally kind of obscured or uh, maybe even intentionally hidden. I don't know. I maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the problems uh, of, of getting this stuff out uh, and challenges, but like, I'm curious, why, 
why is it so difficult to get to? I know we, I know you talked to, to Hokai about this a little bit, but maybe just a short mm. response because I'm I'm confused. Uh, yeah, well, there's uh, this has to do with a combination of historical accidents and um, politics. In the early phase of modernization in Asia, the the whole point of this was to make Buddhism look good to Westerners. And Tantra at that time did not look good to Westerners um, who were Christians um, uh, of a Victorian sort. Um, Tantra you know, involves sex and putting sex and religion together is a big problem. And uh, it's got some demons in it and Christians don't like demons. So altogether, Tantra had to be scrubbed away. Mm. Uh, then um, in the 1970s, some Tibetan teachers came to the West for the first time and they started teaching Tantra and they very successfully, I think, modernized it to make it relevant to the um, spiritual climate of the 1970s and 80s. I'm thinking of uh, Chögyam Trungpa, for example, Tartang Tulku, a little later, Chögyal Namkai Norbu Rinpoche. Um, however, uh, that kind of got squashed partly by conservative Tibetans and partly as a result of the uh, a series of um, serious scandals um, and a general discomfort on the part of mainstream American Buddhists with this. Um, since then, there's become more and more inaccessible, I think. Mm. Um, there's been a, uh, a, a really, I think it has been deliberately suppressed. Yeah, I remember you uh, in one of the articles you said it's a combination of conservative Tibetans and politically correct Westerners that kind of, in some sense, yes. uh, squished that that movement. Yes. Yeah, I guess when the so heat I, I th turns up, it gets a little difficult to uh, to do things sometimes, or to to accept uh, that there's something of value there. Yeah, I mean, tantra is it's uncomfortable. I mean, it's about passion and strong emotions are um, difficult, uh, can be unpleasant, and they can be actively dangerous. Uh, you know, there, there is a, a reputation that Tantra has for danger that's probably exaggerated, but not entirely mistaken. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, 
visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.